Welcome to the Aesthetic City podcast. In this show, we aim to discover how to go forward and create a more livable, beautiful, and healthy built environment. I'm Ruben Hansen, your host and founder of the Aesthetic City. Today's guest is an architect based in Rome and professor at Notre Dame University School of Architecture. He runs his own practice and he has a long history of collaborating with 2014 Driehaus Prize laureate Pier Carlo Bontempi. His practice transformed from modernism to traditional and classical architecture over the years. And his broad expertise spans all the way from architecture to watercoloring and photography to urban planning. So please welcome Jonathan Weatherill. Thank you, Jonathan, for joining today. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for asking me. It's a great pleasure to be here. So, yeah, we, we've met already twice, mm-hmm. I believe, or once. Twice. So, this year and last year, yes. Two years. Yeah, twice. Yeah, it was a great honor to have you on at the Utrecht Summer School because you've had some fantastic lectures where, yeah, uh, you already told a lot about yourself and your process of becoming an architect. But for the audience who doesn't know you and uh, hasn't had that wonderful lecture and that backstory, could you tell a bit about, yeah, this process of you becoming an architect and your early development and also your attitude towards architecture at that time? Well, I, one thing I actually didn't ever mention in my talks, I uh, just thought about it, just came to mind right now, is that I was, was born or mm-hmm. lived my early childhood and grew up in uh, always in places which were holiday destinations. So I lived by the beach um, for the yeah. first 15 years of my life. <laughs> um, so going on holiday was not going to the beach. Going to yeah. the beach was not a holiday. Uh, with my parents, we would travel around the world and we'd visit places, visit cities, um, visit castles, villas. Um, my mother had, my mother was a nuclear phys- is a nuclear mm-hmm. physicist, um, but she did uh, she studied in graduate school at Yale, and she did architecture as a minor with Vincent Scully in the 60s. Um, so she had a ar- bit of architectural background. Mm-hmm. My father was creative. He was a photographer. Um, uh, I was always uh, enthusiastic about drawing. I would draw. Um, I'd sketch even you know, age 12 yeah. in Venice. I, I, I forced my parents to take me to Venice when I was 12 and to Florence and spent most of the time sketching. <laughs> um, so I was, I, I was exposed to architecture from an early age. I was, um, as I mentioned, I was creative. I was, a, I was also a musician um, and I liked inventing. I was very inventive. Um, my first ambition was to be an aeronautical yeah. engineer. And at an early age, I went to several university open days and then discovered that it was actually quite boring Oh, um, the other possibility was maybe to take a musical <laughs> career, but then I realized that that was very, very, um, monopolizing, uh, to be a concert pianist, all you do all the day, all day long mm-hmm. is play the piano. Um, and then yeah. at, at high school, yeah. my best friend's father was a well-known architect, an important architect, and got, got to know him very well. And, um, I was already designing houses on just as a kind of pastime. Occasionally I would design a house because I'd like to do that. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, talking to him, it became clear that architecture embodied many of my passions and that I could still be an architect and play the piano, whereas I couldn't be a pianist and design building. So I decided to take that career. Yeah. Um, that was my, my very early stage. Um, I was, I came from a progressive mm-hmm. conservative, let's say, you know, 
um, upper middle class English background, but my father was very liberal. Um, yeah. But I went to English boarding schools and we went on field trips at, at, at school. We went to, I went to Venice and Florence again with my school. So I'd been there already twice by the time I was 16. And uh, I applied to architecture mm -hmm. school. And eventually I joined the Architectural Association yeah. because I was already you know, aware of traditional architects such as Quinlan Terry, yeah. um, who were working at the time. They, at that point, hadn't really mm -hmm. convinced me fully. So I wasn't considering a path as a traditional architect. When I was accepted to the Architectural Association, they uh, suggested that I take a year out, a gap, what do you call a gap year, after, after high school. Yeah. before university and I went to Italy and I worked in Milan in the late eighties when it was a very vibrant design scene. And the uh, person I worked with in Milan was Piercarlo Bontempi, um, who had just split off yeah. from a, an avant-garde modern postmodern design office <laughs> and set up his own office with a partner who was an artist. And we did interior design, um, houses, shops. Uh, furniture, and he wasn't a traditional architect at that time. He was really postmodern still. Yeah. Um, so I, my first contact with Piercarlo Bontempi was age 18, um, working uh, with a lot of responsibility on building sites um, in a foreign country, in a foreign language. Very exciting and formative experience. So I, I've remained friends and the worked with Piercarlo ever since, even though I have my own activity. Um, and while I was at the Architectural Association, I would go back in the summer holidays and work, work with him. Um, he shortly afterwards mm -hmm. moved back to Parma, which is his own hometown, and started uh, going into traditional architecture. He was, you know, his, his moment of experimentation with postmodernism and modern design was sort of over and he was really interested in, in, um, exploring traditions and re renewing the identity of places, right. giving people houses, which gave them a, which respected the identity of those places. And, um, in those summer holidays, we yeah. worked together on the very first, um, new traditional buildings in Italy, um, and taught each other and taught ourselves how wow. to do it by just observing, looking at existing buildings, existing towns. Um, so that's where it started. Um, even then I wasn't you know, convinced I wanted to be a yeah. traditional architect, but, but it was an interesting discipline. Hmm. But you, you hadn't gone to, uh, architecture school by then, or was it by the time we your, started doing traditional uh, architecture, I was at then. the architectural association. Yeah. I was almost, almost finishing my, okay. my degree. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the architectural association, as you may know, okay. yeah, is, yeah, yeah. you know, a would be Archistar factory, let's say, where people like Brent Coolhouse went. Oh. <laughs> so, very, very yeah. different. That's in London. That's in London. I yeah. assume. Many traditional architects I've talked with. I mean, I know I've known since, since I was 18, I've known Francis Terry actually, um, well, they were always the voice outside oh, the crowd, yeah. you know, they were fighting against the system to do traditional architecture. I wasn't fighting to, against the system. I was, you know, convinced I wanted to be an archi star and modern architect. Um, 
Yeah. I had enough problems at the Architectural Association yeah. just designing buildings. So I was not designing traditional buildings. Just designing a building was 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 you know radical or or reactionary enough for them. You go to a review and come there with a building you designed, <laughs> and they'd be, what? Why? Why did you design a building? Why did you really want to design a building? You know, I was like, aren't we doing architecture? Uh, <laughs> no, you didn't design buildings. You had to invent so, theories and. And, and stories. It was very, yeah. very stimulating, I have to yeah, say. Yeah. Wow. Could you perhaps give a bit of a um, description of that world, that world of uh, London, of yeah, this architectural association? What happens there? How do they think? What is that world like? Is and is it still there? It's still there. Yes, and it's going stronger than before. Um, I went back there last year to have a look. Mm. Um, it it. What it does have, which is very positive, is very pluralist. There's a huge variety. Um, the whole the, the system of the school is, is split yeah. up into what they call units. And the further you get in the course, the smaller the units and the more numerous they are. So when you get into the last two years of, of, of the school, uh, I think there may be 20, 15 to 20 various groups of professors you can choose from. At the beginning of each year, you choose which professor you want to, to study with. And hope that they accept you. You can do a little interview with them and decide whether they <laughs> agree with each other. So you have very small groups of students, maybe five, six, or seven students for one or two professors. And there's a huge variety of what yeah. each professor is teaching and the, and the kind of um, paths they're taking. But you and there's a lot of cross cross pollination. You can see what all the others are doing. You go to the reviews. You talk to each other. Um, at the same time, mm -hmm. when I was there, they still had a very valid, um, two, two very valid courses, uh, postgraduate courses in garden conservation and building conservation. Um, so there was, you know, there was possibility to, to learn also, you know, very solid traditional techniques in a very, very progressive, um, avant-garde school. Yeah. Um, there, you know, th there was a. Var wide variety mm. of lectures or of history and theory. Yeah. Um, it really was you know, that you could take from it what you were what you were most interested in. Or so it was to, it, yeah. in that in that way it was very very positive. Yeah. And I I still I think it's you know I see that it's still you know mm -hmm. pretty much continued in that in that way. Yeah. Yeah, I feel the same as in many other, uh, well, let's say modernist education, uh, yeah, universities, you still have really good renovation courses, mm -hmm. but the point is they're seen as renovation and not mm -hmm. as, yeah, it's really, it's siloed and compartmentalized and kept away from the proper new design. That's right. That's, but, that's uh, still the case. even. But still, uh, yeah, but, but yeah, that's, that's good to hear. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, I mean, it, ideally, the, reno the techniques you learn in renovation are, are applicable to new construction, too. And still very valid. Mm -hmm. but yeah. There are a few breakthroughs that be made there. Yeah. So, and, um, but for the rest, yeah, it, it depends on the student then, what you learn in the architecture association much, and yeah. what choices yeah. the student makes, or is there also kind of a direction? Okay. It depends yeah. very much on the student. Yeah. Well, that's indeed a positive yeah. thing. It's, uh, it's important that you have a, a good relation with your professor. It's very personal. Um, there's a lot of, 
when I was there, at least, there was a lot mm -hmm. of rivalry between professors. So, you know, reviews, mm -hmm. you had professors from other groups who were looking at your work and you had to be able to, to defend your work. And if you had a good relationship with your profession, he was able to support you and defend you as well. It was very good um, training for real life, real world experience, I have to say, in that sense. Yeah, yeah. How did you then gravitate towards traditional architecture after this period? And uh, was it through working with Pier Carlo Bontempi? Um, well, I think for sure, yeah, I think for sure if I hadn't, if I hadn't met Pier Carlo Bontempi and I wasn't, hadn't continued to work with him, maybe I wouldn't have taken this path. Um, it was, a, I continued to work with Pier Carlo Bontempi up until I still do continue to work with him. I worked with him full time for several years and then as a you know, associate, um, as a collaborator up until now. Um, working in traditional architecture, I had always considered it to be a sort of discipline. Um, whereas in, in m many European universities, they don't even teach, almost in Italy, they don't even teach the history of architecture. I mean, what is before the Second World War practically yeah. doesn't exist. Um, that was not something I, I mm. thought was, was right. Um, the, the architect, the father of my best friend at school, who, he, who moved me towards architecture, mm -hmm. was a, was a well-known, um, award-winning, decorated, um, uh, architect at a national, international level in England. Um, he was a modern architect. But he would spend every summer, he would go to Italy and travel around Italy and sketch and draw. Um, and for me, it was natural that in, even yeah. a modern architect would understand and, and, and learn from the past whatever he was doing. So it wasn't something I thought was very strange, although it was, I understand it was something that was very unusual for people to do. Um, I eventually really just moved gradually moved further, ever further towards traditional architecture and classical architecture. One, because in my private practice in Northern Italy, I came into contact with um, wealthy landowners, you know, old noble families. And because I was English, they automatically assumed that I could do things like garden design. And I had a particular sensitivity to old, <laughs> uh, to heritage, uh, which, you know, Fortunately, was correct. I can do uh, landscape design and, and restore old buildings in a very sensitive manner. So most of my my own private uh, work is fairly traditional as well. Although I worked with other architects, other engineers, um, I designed a modern office building for a, a steelworks in 2017. So I mean, even recently, I was working on modern architecture. Um, and it's, I have to say the working with other modern architects, especially in Italy is what has pushed me towards traditional architecture because I've seen how they work. And, um, <laughs> this is, uh, let's say yeah. one of the, one of yeah. the, the, um, interesting. one of the main, um, criticism, which is aimed at traditional architects is that they are copying from the past. You know, you're just, you're not doing anything new. You're just copying. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, I've seen how much modern architects copy themselves, copy from each other, um, copy off the internet, and how unbelievably homologated yeah. most modern architecture is. It's, 
there's nothing um, innovative or individual yeah. or groundbreaking about it. It's extremely <laughs> um, derivative of from from each other, and I eventually found it just yeah. really not that interesting, and much less challenging. And I found it much more challenging to look at old architecture um, and learn from it and understand how the lessons of of, of traditional um, cities and places can be applied to a modern day environment. And I continue to this day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, after yeah working for some time um, as an architect, you also ended up at Notre Dame University. Mm -hmm. So how did that, yeah, how did you, uh, yeah, when did you first visit university? How did you become, uh, yeah, connected to the institute? Well, I suppose this is a long-term progress, but I'm process, but actually very, both long-term and very sudden at the same time. Um, because with Piacala Tempi mm -hmm. in the late 90s, I did, I had did quite a lot of uh, teaching, um, following a competition that we won in London in 1996, I believe. There's the, Mar the famous Martian Street competition. We came second, mm -hmm. we didn't win it. But our project was um, highly exposed to, to opinion and very, very well thought of. Uh, we subsequently taught, um, I taught at the Prince of Wales' Institute when it was a university in Regent's Park. Mm -hmm. um, we taught summer courses, uh, what you call, what we call uh, urban design task forces or, or sort of charrettes um, throughout Northern Italy. Um, I also taught a graduate school course at the University of Miami. This was all at a very young age. Um, some of my students at the, mm -hmm. the Prince of Wales Institute were older than me and are still very good friends. Uh, but uh, so it was a, I, <laughs> I'm not a teacher in general by nature, but I did find that I was very, you know, capable of teaching architecture as something that I came just naturally to me. So I knew I could teach architecture and in the nineties mm. actually came yeah. into contact with the University of Notre Dame, um, very briefly in London when they opened the building in Trafalgar Square and were considering an architecture program there. I met one of the members of the, of the faculty of Notre Dame, um, Samir Younes in London. And that was the last contact I had with Notre Dame myself until much, much later. Then of course, Pierre Colobon Tempe won the Dry House Prize, went to Notre Dame himself and, and lectured. And then in 2018, so only five years ago, five, six years ago, um, Samir Younes actually contacted me out of the blue and said, oh, we haven't ever had you as a, as a critic in our reviews. Wouldn't you like to come to Rome or to, to, to America, to our campus, and, um, and be a critic for us? And I said, oh, yeah, of course, I'd love to. Um, and he asked me to send send him, send him my my CV, and I did. And mm -hmm. I didn't hear anything for several months. And then eventually he came back to me and said, "Look, there's a position. Um, maybe you could try applying for it." And I did. And um, they invited me to campus. Yeah. I spent a week on the on Notre Dame's campus in America, 
doing reviews, um, being grilled uh, in interview after interview uh, by colleague after colleague. Um, <laughs> it was a very, very intense uh, five days, what they call a candidacy visit. Um, and the result was mm -hmm. that they hired me. Um, they first hired me as a, as a visiting professor for a year. And then after that year, apparently went very well, um, hired me full time. So I've been with Notre Dame now since 2018, fall of, since the autumn of 2018. And it's a extremely, yeah. extremely yeah. positive experience. Yeah. I've yet to visit, mm -hmm. um, but looking at the student work, it's just an incredible program and, and hearing the, well, <laughs> the stories, uh, also knowing uh, how incredibly high the number of students is that directly gets a job after mm -hmm. graduating there yeah. compared to other, uh, yeah, architectural, yeah, architecture schools. Yeah, no, I have to say I, I envy my own students in, you know, immensely uh, because I, I didn't have that, that, opp that <laughs> opportunity. I had a different, I had other opportunities, of course, and I'm, I'm glad of them. But um, for instance, when they come to Rome, even those students that can't draw, I mean, you do get, you know, a few students who are, are terrible at drawing. After a year in Rome of drawing and sketching on site, they make huge, huge progress. I mean, I try and draw myself as much as I can, but yeah. of course I don't have that much time. I don't have as much opportunity as the students have. Um, and by the end of the year, almost all the students are at least as good at me as me, if not better. So, I mean, it's, frustrating wow. for me to see <laughs> how how what could be you know and uh, they yeah. they do have a wonderful so opportunity they, maybe they come up the reason why they all get jobs is they have they come out of yeah. the university with skills that other architects simply don't have um skills and sensitivity yeah. and there is a yeah. huge market for that yeah so is there any way maybe as a tip for listeners if you want to draw and you don't have this kind of elite guidance like you have at Notre Dame, so how would you go about and self self train or yeah, what would your program be? Mm. Is there a way to to get good? Well, you don't need to have such that the guidance doesn't really need to be that elite. I mean, the the real the most important thing is just to keep doing it. Um, to practice and practice and practice. The more you draw, mm -hmm. I mean, simply the better you get out of it. It's very simple. Some people have a, have a, have a, a natural talent, yeah. of course, but even those without an apparent huge skill, if they just persevere at it and keep at it, um, they make huge progress. I mean, they really do. It. And of course, it is important, especially at the beginning, I think, to have a bit of feedback from someone who understands, you know, what where the issues are. I mean, classic things is people do perspective drawings and the, the point of view is up in the air. You know, they have this weird, weird perspective. Um, yeah. These are common mistakes that people without experience have in the beginning. So, I mean, if you just have a little bit of guidance from people, you know, artists and, you know, everyone I think has a friend who, who's an artist or a drawer of some sort. Um, it's important, I think, to show to show yeah. your work to them and, and get opinions. But really, um, the, the best advice I give my students, I think in that, in this respect is just to keep, mm -hmm. to draw whenever you can and, and keep at it and to draw things that they like. 
Yeah. It's very important that, that people draw mm -hmm. buildings or, or things that, that are beautiful because by doing that, you actually, you the more you do it, the more information you upload into your own, into your own brain, into your own consciousness. And the more and more you do it, the more natural, yeah. uh, naturally it comes to you. Um, so it, yeah. it actually helps you to learn how to design because you're, you're absorbing information. And when you go to actually design yourself, um, it, it's already there. You don't have to, to, you don't have to invent it or make it up. Mm -hmm. It comes out and, um, it's information that you yeah. have acquired. Yeah. Very important. Whereas taking photographs, is, you, taking photographs is, is useful in yeah. very you know, important documentation, but physically actually drawing really does create, you know, it helps you to, to gather that information in a much more complete way. Yeah. Should you draw from real life or from a picture or is it both okay? Ideally from real life. I mean, from real life is definitely, definitely. Um, okay. Why is that? Uh, because you, in real life, you have a, you, you have a real situation, which you have to then observe very carefully and interpret and, and record from a picture. It's half of the work is already done for you. Of course, it's useful to draw from pictures. I mean, it's still, it's still a positive thing to do, um, but it's, um, yeah, it's, it's all that yeah. the, the two dimensional, um, presentation is already there for you. So it's, it's much, it's much easier. It's less of a challenge. Um, it's sometimes yeah. you don't have time to do it. So you take a picture and then you draw from the picture. Um, I have, I do it occasionally, but I always find that the drawings I do from real life, uh, have somehow much more, they're much more convincing. They have more, more life yeah. of their own to them. So it's better to draw from real life if you can. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not a, like a second derivative. It's uh yeah, it's, it's a, uh, yeah. <laughs> and you can kind of, when you're there, you might be able to shift your perspective yeah. a little bit. It's, yeah. Of course. I mean, even in, um, the, in the Renaissance, I mean, most people that, that most painters or, or draftsmen or drawers, people that did etchings, people like uh, Letaro in, in Rome who recorded all of the, Renaissance architecture in Rome. Most of these people, even Piranesi, used um, tools. I mean, they used camera scura, for instance, to draw, which makes things a lot easier. It's maybe it doesn't yeah. have quite the same effect. <laughs> at that in that period, that that there was no no such thing as photography. So if you wanted to record something, I mean, people went on the grand tour yeah. in Italy and they got artists to come and accompany them. You couldn't take a picture; you had to paint it and draw it. So I mean, it was. Painting and, and yeah. drawing was the, the the means of recording uh, a memory or a place or something you've seen. Um, so, until the advent of photography, you know, people used whatever whatever tools they could to do it as accurately as possible, and which is perfectly understanding. And then, with the, with the mm -hmm. advent of photography, the 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 whole role of painting and drawing changed. So you, you, no, you no longer have that necessity to use your paintings and drawings to record because you could do it with a pic, with a camera. So you were able to then move into other kinds of painting, such as impressionism and, and abstract painting. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, 
Ja, ja, ja. Ja, so yeah, the camera was a big thing. Yeah. Maybe the final one because I think this is really interesting for uh, yeah for these really practical hands-on um, yeah ideas about about sketching because it's so important. Uh, what would be your your advised medium like pen or uh, uh, just pencils? Uh, yeah, for for people beginning or starting out, or do you advise them to uh, switch or do watercolor or? I would, I, anything, any medium is good, really. I mean, myself, I think, I mean, yeah. first I think I started with pencil and then with a pen. Uh, I did a lot of pen and ink drawing, uh, quite detailed pen and ink drawing. Pen and ink drawing is, is useful because you can't, can't erase it. So you just go with it. You have to, you know, the mark you made mm -hmm. on the paper is going to stay yeah. there. And you don't have to worry, but you just have to, to live with it and not worry about it. And now most of the time I go, I use watercolor. Uh, I use watercolor a lot because um, it, I get, I get a ma the maximum effect with the, the least effort. I have to say, I mean, I, I do admit that I use watercolor yeah. also because I'm lazy because I can, I can draw, I can do <laughs> a very quick pencil drawing. It doesn't have to be that great. And then you can complete it with color and then hopefully you've got nice shadows and you can really make it come out with the shadows. So, I mean, if I was to give you a, a watercolor tour, tutorial, I've, most of my watercolors I do in about 20 minutes. I mean, they're very, very quick I and mean, almost messy. Yeah. But with that, that's you know, after years and years and years, I get quicker and quicker and messier and messier about at it. I mean, my first sketches that I did even age 12 or 13 were very, very precise and, and obsessively detailed uh, pen and ink drawings. Anything is possible. I mean, I've seen students of yeah, mine yeah. do most amazing drawings with a biro. I mean, <laughs> or a felt tip pen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's always the kind of the the for many people uh, kind of the paralyzing um, uh, effort in the beginning. Mm -hmm. The 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 paralyzing kind of fear of beginning and uh, just starting out and doing something um, instead of just, yeah, grabbing what you have and, and doing it. Um, and I guess it's the, the, the really the, the best thing indeed is to create a daily um, habit out of it mm -hmm. to go draw as, as often as you can. Um, but I can imagine it's, it might be hard for people to, uh, incorporate that in our in their everyday lives and i mean i'm lucky i live in amsterdam but mm -hmm. if you live well i mean somewhere in a well american suburb or yeah a place far out from some really beautiful spot then uh it's not might be challenging but then yeah, yeah there's, there's probably always something to draw mm -hmm. yeah i did i found i mean i i, um, I spent several yeah. months in america yeah. on campus during covid and I have to say, it was an interesting experience for me. I did, I did find things to draw for sure. Um, maybe not as much as you would in Rome or mm -hmm. in Amsterdam, but some American high school buildings, churches. Um, yeah, there is there is material. So now you live in Italy for a long time in Rome, mm -hmm. to be exact. And what is it like to live there and to yeah hold your practice? Teach students. Well, I mean, living in Italy is wonderful, which is why I, I'm in the country. Of course, it has a Italy has a 
a lot of problems, but it has a, overall has a good quality mm-hmm. of life. It's a beautiful country, beautiful food. Um, as a practicing architect, it's probably the worst place in the world to work <laughs> because Italy has, <laughs> I think, as many architects as the rest of the world combined. That may be a bit of an exaggeration, but it gives you a bit of a, a taste. Anyone, every, there's oh, not wow. a single person in Italy <laughs> who doesn't have an architect in the family or amongst their friends. So most architects end up working for their family <laughs> or their friends, and that's it. Um, the, the Polytechnic of Milan yeah. has more architecture students than the entire United States. Uh, I mean, the, the numbers are, sheer, are simply <laughs> staggering. Um, so it is very, very difficult to make your yeah. mark as an architect in Italy. I have to say that working as a traditional architect in Italy, Italy actually does give me a bit of an advantage because there are so few of us. There really, really are very, 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 I mean, there are less yeah. than 10 of us in the whole country. So, I mean, there, it's, wow. And, and traditional architecture is, in my mind, more, more original and more individualistic and more innovative than most of what, what, what modern architects do in Italy. So it's much easier to stand out. To teach in Italy, obviously, yeah. is, is, I can, uh, I can, yeah. <laughs> to teach in Italy is obviously, it's wonderful. I and mean, everyone in, everyone, in America would love to come to Italy to teach. I can understand why. It's a wonderful canvas and source <laughs> of inspiration and, and, and learning for, for all the students and very, very valuable experience. So to be in Italy and teaching is, is a very huge privilege, I have to, to say. Yeah. And what part of Rome do you live in? I live I in the center. Um, I chose to, I chose expense of commuting because to spend to, to yeah. find a house which <laughs> is cheap in rome you have to go not just out into the suburbs but you have to go into the poorly serviced areas of the suburbs and you spend an hour and a half in the car every morning so oh, i'd wow. much rather spend more on my yeah. apartment and be able to walk everywhere and the quality of life is completely transformed as a result so i'm very close to my to the notre dame's yeah. building five minute walk away close to the Colosseum and I can theoretically walk everywhere I want to. Wow. Yeah. Fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. So perhaps if you were to visit Italy as a beginning classical architect or a beginning traditionalist, what would be the best way to shape this experience? What would you, yeah, (laughs) how to prepare for such a city which has so much to offer? I wish books to read. What's where to go? The country. I mean, the country has so much to offer. Uh, I mean, if you're coming to Italy as an architect to, to learn from Italy, you're basically doing what people have done since the 18th century, 1700s. It's called the Grand Tour. Yeah. So I think a good thing to, to read to start with would be Goethe's you know, Voyage to Italy, Italian Journey. Goethe, Stendhal, um, mm-hmm. even D.H. Lawrence, are all the writings of the, all the people of, all the literary writings of people who come to visit Italy are, are very interesting to, to, to read and give you actually a good background of maybe what to look at. Um, Goethe is, of course, of course the most famous of, all, of yeah. them all. Um, obviously, if you, ask, if you want to choose one book to read before you come to Italy, I would say definitely Goethe's Italian Journey. 
Wonderful. And Roman specific? Um, Rome, I mean, books about Rome specifically, or Rome is definitely, let's say. Yeah, just what, so overwhelming. Yeah, it is. <laughs> There's it so is. much to see. So what, what, uh, yeah. Um, my, my first visit to Rome was 10 days. Um, I think that was really, the, obviously not many, not, not everyone can have 10 days to visit Rome on their first visit. Um, I was already in Italy at the time. Um, so I took a spring break mm -hmm. and went down to Rome. Um, 10 days really gave me just enough time, in my opinion, to see sort of the minimum necessary. Um, uh, and of course, uh, yeah. you can spend a whole life in Rome and not see everything. Um, <laughs> but uh, if you if you if you can spend a yeah. week, you know, ten days in Rome on your first visit, I think that would be that would be ideal. Just to get all the group, that's just yeah. Yeah. barely get all the greatest hits in. Um, I can give you. I you want me to list all the greatest hits? There are a lot of them. <laughs> You know, the Vatican, St. Peter's, yeah, yeah. Vatican Museum, yeah. Forum, the catacombs, uh, the whole central, obviously, the, the, the center of Rome, the Pantheon, uh, Campo di Fiori, Villa, the various villas, the Farnesina, Villa Giulia. Mm -hmm. um, you can just about touch the surface of all of these things in about 10 days. But to really, to really immerse yourself in yeah, Rome yeah. takes a, life, yeah, a lifetime. Yeah, I was there this year, February, almost to be last year, because this recorded the last day of the year. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a long weekend, mm -hmm. and it's that is barely enough yeah. to... I mean, it, just doing the Vatican Museums is is uh, already in a fool's errand in one day. Yeah. <laughs> Um, because you can spend a week in that museum, I believe, mm -hmm. um, and still discover new things, or a month yeah. probably. I've I've been there. I've been there many times. I've been there many times, and I've never managed to see everything. So, just to the Vatican Museum. Yeah, it's immense, and um, there's also too many people, I believe. But what happens to the students of Notre Dame when they visit Rome, and what what changes in them? What uh, Good question. Maybe you should ask the students, but it's definitely, it is for sure, it's a life-changing experience. <laughs> um, they are the only American students that have the privilege of spending an entire year as part of the course in Rome. Um, the undergraduates spend the whole year, whole academic year mm -hmm. in Rome. The graduate students spend one semester, which is not really enough. I mean, but in the whole year, it is over overwhelming for them, I think. They are... Um, at all to start with, yeah. um, they want to see everything, travel everywhere. We take them around Italy as well, of course. Um, what happens to them is that they, they do get, you know, fairly deeply immersed in the city over, over the space of a whole academic year. And when, when they leave, I think they bring back memories and material with them that they will never forget. I mean. It is an extremely formative experience. I can imagine, yeah. yeah. Um, perhaps, yeah, moving the, the topic again back to uh, well, architecture and your your work. So what are some of the greatest myths about traditional architecture that you don't agree with and things you'd like to dispel? Mm -hmm. 
Well, the two, the two greatest myths, and one I already touched on a little bit, is that traditional architecture is just copying. If that were the case, then mm -hmm. we wouldn't have great architects like Palladio or, or Raphael or, or Michelangelo because they would, everything would be the same. Um, no, traditional and even classical architecture is not copying. You are constantly understanding um, a way of building, a way of designing elements of architecture which can change according to the location, materials change, elements, decorative elements change, proportions change. And of course, you're applying these tools to a modern day um, context. So you're understanding how architecture works and interpreting it and applying it in a, in a new way. Um, it is anything but just copying very and even if you were just to copy it, um, which is you know, an exercise which was done in the past, um, this was a, an exercise that was done in the, the Academy of San Luca um, in Rome, for instance, in the, um, from the 17th century onwards, 16th century, 17th century onwards. Um, you'd be surprised how difficult it is actually for, mm -hmm. to, to copy architecture and how, how easy it is to get it wrong. So, I mean, if you can even like, actually just copy a piece of architecture to start with, that's actually a very good exercise. And once you can do that, and once you understand um, the elements mm -hmm. of architecture and how to use them, then you can use them in a much freer and more independent and, and um, inventive manner. It's an extremely stimulating and rewarding process, yeah. actually. Nothing, nothing like copying at all. Um, so that, that's one, one of the yeah. myths of, about traditional architecture. Um, the other myth about traditional architecture is it's, um, mm -hmm. you can't do it anymore because it's too expensive. Um, you can't do it anymore because it's too expensive or because yeah. the craftsmanship doesn't exist to, 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 to build, build this way or to carve stone this way. Um, there are, these of course are, are Far from the truth, um, traditional architecture doesn't have to be any more expensive than modern architecture. In, in many cases, it's much, much cheaper, um, especially if you look at high profile, um, land, landmark modernist buildings by so-called star architects, star mm -hmm. architects. I mean, the, the costs of those buildings running nowadays are running into billions. I mean, if you look at how much buildings like the, the Maxi Museum in Rome cost or um, Fuxas's Cloud building in the, in the EUR. Yeah. Um, these are modern buildings which are, you know, costing you know, entire budgets of small countries. They're <laughs> just absolutely phenomenally expensive. Traditional building <laughs> um, is yeah. far, far more cost-effective than this. Um, even traditional housing, um, uh, all the how most almost all the traditional housing that I have designed and built in Italy over the past decades has been low cost housing, affordable housing for absolutely normal mm -hmm. people. So, I mean, I do understand um, if you look at new urbanism in America, it tends to be exclusive, um, but it doesn't have to be. Um, it can be absolutely 
cost-effective and sustainable in every way, financially and, and energy. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking also about the Dutch context where there's a lot of opinions because they, they see it as often being more detailed in some mm -hmm. way compared to the extremely sober, strict yeah, designs that we see in modernist housing. But I must say that, yeah, I don't see how, like, just a proper nice facade with simple windows. I mean, beauty can be very simple, mm -hmm. yet effective. Yep. Traditional designs don't need all the ornaments to, to work. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, even the most ornamented traditional architecture is can be done without huge costs. I mean, there are you can use modern technology. Uh, the CNC, you know, carving has, makes these things much very very easy indeed. Um, it's the other the other criticism that the, the, the yeah. know how and the craftsmanship doesn't exist anymore to do this is not true. You do have the craftsmanship. You can do it by hand. Um, the craftsmanship. Shift exists because people restore old buildings and they need to know how to do them. That's one way that the craftsmanship has been maintained. In Italy, there's a very rich base of craftsmen, according to which region you are in. It you're in Italy for stone masonry, woodworking. Spain has an incredibly rich um, craftsman craftsmanship mm -hmm. base. Um, so you can. You can do it either way. I mean, it's perfectly possible to, to make everything the way it was made 200 years ago completely by hand, which is more expensive, or you can use modern technology and it can be actually quite cost effective. So, completely yeah. possible. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, what are some um, kind of tricks or, uh, yeah, kind of building techniques or, or uh, practical ways that uh, perhaps larger developers could use to save money on traditional designs? Well, let's say, I mean, you can keep it. Or design uh, design elements. Yeah. Well, one of, one of the things I have to say, I've learned working with Piercala Bontempi, and really what we have designed is mostly what I would describe as vernacular architect, um, traditional um, humble um, vernacular building. It doesn't have to be complicated. Generally, the, the simplest solution is what works best. And we, you can use decorative elements very, very carefully, um, economically. Use them where they're most important, where they're most appropriate, um, and using good. Local materials as well is a, is a way to, to cut costs and make things mm -hmm. more sustainable, more durable. Um, it's really a case of, of building simply, but with, with sensitivity. You need to use the right proportions, um, the right scale, um, and there's no, no real trick about it. I mean, it simply isn't any more expensive to build yeah. beautifully um, traditionally than it is to build not beautifully and, and modern buildings. Um, the, the upside of that, especially for a developer, um, is 
not necessarily that they can sell the buildings for a higher price because the market rate is going to be the same, but they will sell them much, much yeah. quick, more quickly. Um, we've always, always found this to be the case. Um, the, the developments that even speculative architecture that we have designed in a traditional manner has always sold immediately. It's never hung around for years or months even waiting for someone to buy it. Yeah. So the, the developer makes yeah. his return immediately. Yeah. Yeah. So you build something that's popular, that's easy to sell and yeah, you don't necessarily need to spend more money. Exactly. Yeah. You yeah. want to, you need to know where not to cut costs. I mean, you want to, there, there are maybe small details on traditional buildings that if you're, if they're not, if you're trying to save, you're really trying to save money too much, you can compromise them. Um, just dimensions, small details. So it does take a little bit of, yeah. of experience and sensitivity to know where you can save a little bit and where, where it's best to invest a little bit more and just make the whole, um, complex and whole building much more convincing. Yeah. So what projects have you worked on recently that you might want to talk about or that have inspired you? Well, the projects I'm working on at the moment, which are still in the design phase, uh, are actually the ones that have been stimulating mm -hmm. me more than any in the past. Um, they are urban design and architectural projects for whole neighborhoods in very yeah. dystopic situations. Um, one is in the south of Milan, in the <laughs> outskirts that I showed this to you in, in my talk in Utrecht, in a suburb of Milan, which was built in the 60s yeah. and 70s in the Soviet style to house immigrant workers from the south of Italy. And now the town has asked me to design mm -hmm. two new neighborhoods in that town as a model of future development to regenerate the town. Um, the, yeah, so it's, it's a very, um, difficult environment to work in. Um, and the aim is to, to, to create new neighborhoods, which have a strong identity and have, uh, appealed people, uh, and to make them feel in a place rather than just sort of in a dormitory. Uh, it's a, it's, it's not easy. It's very challenging, um, but very rewarding indeed. Um, another, another project I'm yeah. working on, which is, uh, socially very interesting is a, is a project. It's an infill urban development in the Bahamas. And you think that sounds like something very, very fancy. Um, this is on Grand Bahama. Um, mm -hmm. not all of the islands in the Bahamas are tourist destinations. This is not a tourist destination. It's a very poor area, um, poorly built, poorly developed. Um, so the aim is to actually give a basic structure to, to a neighborhood, um, and a, a kind of library of design elements and designs of houses that local people can build very cheaply to create what I call a, yeah. a critical mass of good building with character to give a sense of place place which really doesn't have that sense of place at all if you um i would 
I don't invite you to go and visit Grand Bahama, but if you do that, you do it. The whole island has been developed mm -hmm. in the style of an American suburb, um, but it's you know, most of it is quite, quite, quite poor. Um, so it, it yeah. doesn't have the appeal of the nice American suburb. It has the sort of aspect of the poor part of the American suburb. Um, but it, it's yeah. possible actually to yeah. build cheaply and well. And if you have a give a structure to the to the urban um, design of what you're building to create a place which can create an identity and character again same a similar situation to Milan but in a different different context so these these yeah. are our projects which can potentially change people's lives and in, improve the environment in a significant way and this I think is for me the most rewarding prize to be able to do that um, the, mm -hmm. the, to have that that hope that we can actually make a difference um, in in the modern day world where things you know have really places have lost their identities um, people have lost the, the enthusiasm to to be in a place if you can return that identity and that enthusiasm to a place um, improve those places and improve, improve the lives of the people who live in them um, I think you can show how valuable traditional architecture and urbanism can be to the world, which is very, very stimulating. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have the I, I notice the same when I walk in a newly built traditional project that I uh I get excited mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of because you see, hey, it's still possible. Although I must say that nowadays it's also um because I see so many of them, I start comparing and I always I start kind of nitpicking mm -hmm. on the mm -hmm. elements that could Imp be improved yeah. which i hate because it's it's in general it's already an improvement over of course but i I, quote, I think it's important to be criti cr critical in the past it some it's you're obviously so happy to see this kind of architecture and urbanism happen so anything is great compared to what it could be um but the better it is obviously the more positive of a message it gives to the rest of the world. So if you can yeah. create traditional neighborhoods and environments which are well-designed, um, you can really make them stand up for themselves and defend themselves and be you know, positive propaganda for traditional architecture and urbanism. Yeah. Yeah. Important. Yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah, again, I fully agree. Um, it, it's um, we we there there's some pretty bad stuff out there, and uh, it's also one of the criticisms. Yeah, we often hear like, yeah, it's kitsch, mm -hmm. uh, and that's often based on previous examples where it didn't work out that well. I mean, if you are gonna create a molding, create a proper molding because there is intelligence behind it and. Everybody can make a, a bullshit molding <laughs> with just some random yeah, curves, yeah. but that doesn't have the the play of light, which works um, like it was intended to work. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. which has kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why it is. It is evolve over time yeah. with. Uh, that's why it is important yeah. to um, to understand the language that you're working with. You know, properly and to use it in an appropriate manner. Very, very important. 
because you know the criticism you know, I didn't mention that of course but you very rightly mentioned one of the main criticisms against some traditional architecture is that it look, looks kitsch and you know which is, which is a danger if you're not um, skilled if you're not careful and sensitive enough in how you apply it um, if you don't apply it in an appropriate way it can be you know negative so it is important to to understand it and do it properly which is why I, I envy our students so much because they have the opportunity to learn how how to apply this sort of architecture um it's uh, and it is you know also underlines the truth and the fact that you know traditional architecture is not just copying because if you do it badly it it looks like kits so it's not uh, it's not easy to copy it's not easy to yeah. to to understand the language of, of architecture and apply it in a correct way. You need to use a lot of sensitivity, a lot of um, consideration, and to do it very, very carefully. Um, I mean, architect colleagues of mine in Italy, I remember we looked at um, American catalogs. You know, you, you go into a book, bookstore, when you buy, most people, when they buy, build a house in America, they would go into a bookstore, mm -hmm. they buy in your book or houses on hillsides or houses on flat ground and you have a catalog and you look at these houses and you can <laughs> and you can order all the book all the materials and and get it built uh you can even build it yourself um and looking at these these catalog houses colleagues of mine were enthusiastic because I mean, they they look like traditional houses a lot of them do um <laughs> and there's a but if you know what a real traditional American house looks like, in many cases they are there's something wrong with them. There's, you know, they have these these weird applications of columns and decorations and, and and cornices and moldings, and they can look like kits. And most, well, you know, a lot of what is built, even in conservative countries like America or England, are what you call Mac mansions. You know. The Mac Mansion is this yeah, huge, yeah. <laughs> rambling structure yeah. with you know randomly applied classical details, uh, and it looks terrible. <laughs> you have to avoid that. Yeah. Crazy roofs. Yeah. yeah, and but you know people from Italy, you know, ten twenty years ago, had never seen that. No one even thinks of doing that in Italy. Well, some people may do in the south of Italy. So for them, even that was an improvement on the standard sort of modern building. But you have to be yeah. you have to be careful. <laughs> so maybe one last question about reconstruction. Um, so do you think that we can still improve problematic post-war buildings that already exist? Um, like up to how much uh, renovation reconstruction should we go before thinking of demolishing something mm. and just? Yeah. Yeah, building a better urban fabric, for example. It depends depends on the building. Um, to a certain, if the yeah. underlying structure of the building is sound and you know has has been built in such a way that it will be lasting, then I think it's definitely cost effective and more sustainable to adapt that and to re maybe refurbish it in a in a more positive way than it is to demolish it. Um, the um, buildings that are the context where I'm designing in the south of Milan, um, which is this neighborhood built mm -hmm. in the 60s and 70s, uh, probably not, that's probably not the case with these buildings. Um, 
the problem is is reinforced concrete. Really, we have found yeah. we have, have now beginning to learn that reinforced concrete is not a sustainable material. Um, firstly, for the, mm -hmm. the energy which is consumed, the carbon which is produced, actually producing it. Um, and secondly, because it has a lifespan, um, reinforced concrete with steel reinforcing inside has a lifespan of 50 to 60 years, and then it starts to crumble and fall apart. And there are ways of correcting that and repairing it. Um, but there is a kind of point of no return in some buildings where sometimes it's just not worth that effort. Um, it's simply easier, more sustainable yeah. to remove it, um, demolish it, and build something um, in a better manner. So, I mean, it, it, it's, yeah. a, it's a, on a case-by-case -case basis, um, really, it has to be evaluated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's uh, so we see that a lot, and you often get the, the argument: "Yeah, we can better keep it because it's bad for the environment to build more." Um, but in some cases, you can't really get around it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but maybe uh, last question, also a bit of a last topic that also looks at the future and the state of things currently in architecture and uh, where things are going. Because there th seems to be a groundswell of change in architecture with more and more, well, architectural uprising movements popping up everywhere, including Italy, mm -hmm. but also with more and more summer schools, more attention to this topic on social media, um, but also, I feel, in general. Um, what's your view of this movement, if you could call it? Um, yeah, and this, this groundswell, you could say. Yeah, I think this, I mean, it's very, very positive. Um, and I wish, I hope, wish all the best for this movement. It's been a long time in the making, I think. But I think uh, if all goes well, it, it will continue to gain momentum like a snowball effect. I think this is very, very important. Um, I yeah. think where it began to start was, was in England uh, with Prince, when President King's, King Charles was a prince. Um, he was obviously a very, very a vocal um, soundboard for opinion uh, regarding modern architecture and traditional architecture. Um, England was a natural place for this mm -hmm. to start, I think, because it is generally um, a more conservative country. Um, there is a general tendency, uh, if someone is going to build a new yeah. house, for them to build it in a traditional style. Um, when I first met Quinlan Terry in the 90s um, and asked him why he designed you know, mm -hmm. neoclassical buildings, um, he simply said that that was what he got asked to do most. Um, so the, England was a fertile ground um, for this movement to start in, I think. And, and Prince Charles was obviously a very big figurehead um, to give voice to this movement. Um, he was hugely criticized at the beginning by the modern architectures, architecture movement, um, modern architects by colleagues of mine at the Architectural Association, professors of mine the Architectural Association, even I was skeptical at first, um, um, hugely criticized. Poundbury was criticized when they started building it as a kind of toy town kit um, place. Um, but that is, although there have been mistakes made at Poundbury, I think, um, basically he has proven that it is possible to build um, new new neighborhoods, new towns in a traditional manner. And he has changed 
has a huge has a it's had a huge impact on on speculative building in England as a whole. So now, even mm-hmm. the, the large scale house builders in England will tend to use a traditional style. Maybe not done quite so well. Maybe not perfect, but um, overall, he's has had a huge positive impact in England. And I think that is gradually spreading to the rest yeah. of Europe. Um, other countries in Europe don't have such important figureheads to give them voice, but I don't think it, it's that necessary anymore. No. I think you know, yeah. this general sentiment and movement and, and sensitivity to beauty in architecture, which is not something political. I mean, beauty is something which people need in general. Um, if we can return to, 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 to seeking beauty and seeking humanity in uh, urban environments and architecture, um, we can only benefit from this. I think we are beginning to be yeah. at a point um, Europe-wide where this moment, mom, momentum is gathering and hopefully it will make a, a big impact and, and change. And I think where it can make an impact and change is, is on the edge. Um, my personal opinion is, is traditional architecture can change people's lives if you work in from the edge. If you start in the center of a big, big city center, yeah. it, it's difficult to make an impact. But start from the countryside, um, on the edge, in the, in the suburbs, and that way you can really, really change people's lives and make a, make a difference. So I have hope for it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I uh, I agree. That's an interesting view of the the of where so because I I see in in big cities that's where things go go worst in my opinion mm-hmm. where incredibly ugly towers are being raised in in relatively small towns like my hometown they're mm-hmm. gonna build these humongous blocks which are completely out of place in yeah. that city so so when what is the edge but yeah I agree there the periphery is much larger than the inner cities um, right. and I also yeah. do believe that. In the periphery, the most interesting things happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to say, in cent- city centers are not in good shape at the moment. I mean, I'm, it's very worrying to see where London has gone. For instance, the city of London, which is previously where it was previously forbidden to build anything taller than, than St Paul's Cathedral, now there's a huge forest of skyscrapers, and architects and people think, oh, this is great modernism, we're moving forward, the city is, is moving into the, into the new millennium. Um, but it's also, I think, creating a backlash against itself, uh, because if you do so much unsustainable, really, um, and architecture with such a negative impact, people realize this. I mean, and each skyscraper mm-hmm. in London has its own derogatory name. You know, you have the Shard, you have the, the walkie-talkie, you have the mm-hmm. Gherking. And people joke about them. Um, they, you know, the, <laughs> we won't even talk about the, the impact of them themselves. But there is this yeah. huge movement to make dystopic architecture in city centers, which is based on, seems to be based on on sci-fi movies, which weren't weren't to be copied. Um, <laughs> and this is very. Contrary, I think, to what people really want or need in a in in a humane environment, um, the most extreme version of this, I think, which I think is becoming very clearly <laughs> uh, a manifesto against against itself. Um, I think you know the, the the negative impact 
and the negative press that it's getting is is so great that it may be maybe a turning point in this kind of development is uh, Saudi Arabia's neon development. Uh, you know, a yeah. wall, a mirror wall, 150 mm. kilometers long, long in the desert. I mean, who really thinks that is a good idea? I mean, to be honest. Or, you know, or a ski resort on a rocky mountain yeah. top where there's no snow. Yeah. yeah. So you have to create cement uh, ski slopes. And, I mean, yeah. Let, let's hope that's <laughs> the turning point. Um, yeah. yeah. You get to a point where and, modern uh, architecture yeah, gets, so so, yeah, gets so unsustainable and ridiculously absurd that people, I think, realize, begin to realize it. Sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's no worries. It, it's it's indeed, it, it's um, the levels of absurdity are rising uh, to just insane levels. Um, and I think... Yeah, you, 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 yeah, you, I mean, it's gone so far out of common sense that normal people are starting to see. And I think also that we're now able to communicate about it on the internet mm -hmm. without like the, I don't know, the, the, the fancy architecture magazines uh, gatekeeping. Yes. <laughs> what opinions are being shared uh, is a huge point. Yeah. But um, perhaps, yeah, um, I think we've been talking for already over an hour or so. Perhaps it's a nice yeah. <laughs> last topic. So thank you so much, uh, yeah, Jonathan, for being on. And uh, yeah, no, I thank I thank you, Ruben. Yeah. I think I mean in in uh, to counter the effect of the gatekeeping establishment architecture press and and internet uh, uh, press. I think what you are doing. Uh, is extremely, extremely valuable and, and positive. And I thank you so much for your work. And and this is the last day of the year, and I hope the next year going forward we'll see much more of this. And I wish you all the best in in your amazing, amazing work. Really, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 a pleasure to do. It's fun to do, uh, and it's um, yeah necessary still and i hope indeed that next year is going to be uh, which starts in uh, i think 11 hours mm -hmm. and a bit less even is going to be beautiful uh, yeah i don't know even more information spread to even more people because we i mean i've uh, this is just the beginning of of the kind of a roadmap mm -hmm. of a lot of points i want to discuss in these videos and uh, my biggest problem is is probably perfectionism that i want to do too much the video is like too good kind of uh or too 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 good but i mean that that's up to people to decide but to to incorporate too much in them um but one video i'm really looking forward to make is a video about costs of building um mm -hmm. because while well, you we already talked about this uh in this interview uh, that's also a hard one because i feel i need proof for it mm -hmm. um even though there is plenty of proof but it, it's mostly based on common sense so yeah. that's a, a big one but yeah i'm looking forward to uh, to specifically make that video well i'm looking forward to seeing that too yeah thank you for everything and uh well see you next time yeah see you soon thank you very much indeed Robin. thank you for listening to another episode of the aesthetic city podcast you can find more information on jonathan weatherill and the included links in the description 
If you like our content and want to support what we do, you can support us in various ways. The easiest way is to give this podcast a favorable review. Another way to support this podcast is to share it with colleagues and friends. You can also follow us on X, subscribe to our YouTube channel or our Substack newsletter. And finally, the ultimate way to support The Aesthetic City is to become a patron. Find the Patreon link in the description. For more information about this platform, visit theaestheticcity.com. Thank you until next time.